0: What's up guys? Welcome to episode number 19 of Sir Kevin Says. Thank you for joining. Today we feature Harry Kim. Pretty cool guy. All around good trumpet player. (laughs) I'm being sarcastic. You'll see in the podcast why. Harry was born in New York City, where he attended high school for the performing arts and prepared for a career as a classical trumpeter. After high school, however, he relocated to Los Angeles and soon discovered the world of funk and jazz. After several years touring throughout the U.S. with various show groups, R&B groups, and big bands, including the Harry James Big Band, he returned to L.A. to further his career. Latin music took a front seat during the disco era, a time when live music was rarely featured in discotheques, but was in strong demand by salsa audiences. It was at this time that he began working with such artists as Tito Puente, Celia Cruz, and also began honing his arranging skills by writing and performing on many disco productions. Soon he joined Stevie Wonder's Wonder Love, which opened the doors of opportunity to perform and record with such artists as Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, The Four Tops, The Temptations, and Smokey Robinson. He was on stage for the Emmy Award-winning 25th anniversary of Motown, performing with many of Motown's greatest stars. It was an evening highlighted by Michael Jackson's introduction of his now-legendary Moonwalk. In 1985, he joined the Phoenix Horns, the celebrated horn section of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Together, they performed with various artists throughout the U.S., Europe, and Asia. Included were two tours in 1987 and 1988. In 1989, Kim participated in the making of Phil Collins' multi-award winning CD, But Seriously, a world tour followed in 1990, marking the beginning of a long association with Collins. The multi-platinum live CD concert series, Hits Live, was released soon after. Realizing the many advantages of being part of a high-performance horn section, Kim founded the Vine Street Horns, he called together musicians with whom he had worked for many years. Numerous productions with various artists were to follow. In 1994, Phil Collins called on the Vine Street Horns to join him on his Both Sides Tour, an extensive 18-month world tour. In 1996, he was asked by Collins to organize a big band featuring adaptations of his music and the music of Genesis in a jazz setting. The Phil Collins Big Band was born. As musical director and arranger, Kim and the Vine Street Horns took center stage performing at all the major European jazz festivals, with Tony Bennett as vocalist and Quincy Jones as a guest conductor. This was also the year they recorded Phil Collins' Into the Light CD, which toured the world in 1997. The year 1998 saw another Phil Collins big band tour resulting in a live CD entitled "A Hot Night in Paris. In the new millennium, Harry Kim continues to enjoy a well-balanced schedule of studio recordings and live performances. Although he continues to tour around the world with Phil Collins, he also manages to add his long list of credits while at home. He was also the horn section leader and arranger for the 2005 through 2009 seasons of American Idol, as well as America's Got Talent and Celebrity Duets. If you're listening via Spotify, I invite you to follow Sir Kevin Says. If you're on Apple Podcasts, you can show your support by subscribing and rating the show five stars. Alternatively, you can watch the video version of this and every other episode on my YouTube channel, Kevin Michael Chong, or visit my website, www.SirKevinChong.com and view or listen to them that way. Episode number 19 with Harry Kim. Here you go. Welcome to episode 19 of Sir Kevin Says. Today I am with Harry Kim, producer, arranger, band leader, founder
1: of the of Vine Street Horns. <laughs> Harry, how are you doing? I'm good. May I add trumpet player? Yes. An overall a, nice guy. Yes, you're a very, very
0: nice guy. Thank
1: <laughs> you for taking the time to do this. Thank you for coming all the way from wherever you came.
0: Uh, the Inland Empire, the other valley. Oh my. Gosh. Yeah, it's hot there isn't it it's well it's hot over here too it's about the
1: same right now uh, it's, 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 okay. <laughs> it a it's a weird thing. We're having a monsoonal uh what do they call it just it's really humid in la yeah. it's very very rare so i know how's it going harry what, what have you been up to these days well getting ready to tour in two weeks again with phil collins mm-hmm. i've been touring with phil collins on this round, uh, about three years now, he started touring again, came out of retirement in 2017. Wow. And uh, for three years, we've been covering the world. And audiences are loving him more now than ever before. Yeah. You know, I've, yeah. I've been with him for 30 years. Yeah. And it seems like he's so beloved by his fans mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. They, they love him. And the audiences are amazing. And... Uh, the good thing about it is because, you know, we used to one of the things that that really um, made him feel sad all the time because critics hated him. They never wrote good reviews on him. They tore him apart because, you know, he, he was a pop singer. He wrote great pop tunes, mm-hmm. and critics were looking for pioneers in the rock world, and yeah. it wasn't his fault. He wrote hits, you yeah. know? So it used to make him very sad. Uh but everywhere we're going now, it's like those old critics all cacked. They all died, <laughs> and all these young critics are discovering them for the first time, yeah, and writing incredible reviews. It's it's a really amazing to read. Yeah, uh, uh, it's not, not like the, you know, the critics have past. It, it, it you read the reviews, or I would read the reviews every once in a while, and it, and it didn't sound like they were at the show. Mm. You know, maybe they sent somebody. Or maybe they stayed for the first three songs and then they trashed them. But these people are staying and they're, they're seeing the audience reaction and they're, they're also experiencing it because this really is a great show yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so the reviews have been great. And he's awesome. been happy. Yeah. We've been happy because we've always felt bad too reading the reviews and mm. they just trashed them in back, in, back in the day. Well, not anymore he's he's a legend now beloved, and oh, he's I mean, he, beloved. Yes. that's the word that's people incredible. love him and his fans love him even more and they're bringing their children their grown children they're all discovering phil collins you know well i shouldn't say discovering because you know any any phil collins fan played the music in the house all the time so their kids heard it while they were growing up yeah. constantly, I hear that all the time, Yeah, you know, and then, uh, you know, my mom and my dad used to play this music and now I get to hear it for the first time live and, oh, it's really outstanding. And That's... then I feel real old. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's... So Harry, where are you originally from? Where were you born? Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. I'm sure well, everybody uh, wants I, to know.
1: I, if if you <laughs> want to get into it. Yeah, let's do it. So let me tell you a little bit about my background. And sorry if it turns out to be a lot, not a little. No. But this is the part that fascinates people uh, all the time. See, uh, my parents are Korean. Mm -hmm. You know, my grandparents on my mother's side were Korean immigrants that somehow. (laughs) Anyon haseo? Como tu quieras, chico, porque yo no hablo eso. That's right. And you're fluent in French too, right? Uh, Not fluent, (laughs) but I can can, speak. I could romance a woman in French. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, but, um, yeah, um, let's see. uh, My grandparents on my mother's side migrated to to Mexico, to Yucatan, as workers back then, turn of the century, turn of the last century. Mm. And they worked on plantations. cane was a big commodity at the time. They made rope and a lot of stuff out of that particular cactus. And they showed up and... They were. It was like slavery, indentured servitude. You know, they went there and it turned out to be slave labor. And uh, so, this is actually documented. This book's written on the group of Koreans that escaped from Yucatan, Mexico, and went to Cuba. And uh, there were apparently only 293 of them. And uh, this, like I said, a book written, but it's all in Korean. I've never read it because I can't read Korean. So my mother grew up, born in Mexico, grew up in in, in Cuba. And then she, uh, after World War II, she decided to um, be a pioneer, you know, very courageous woman, went by herself to New York, you know, uh, and uh, she was an illegal immigrant for a while. Oralese! And... Uh, you know, by, by the time uh, immigration caught up to her, she had kids and was yeah. married and all that jazz. But we grew up speaking Spanish. Wow. Because my mother spoke Spanish, and my father was grew up in America, so American, a Korean-American. Mm-hmm. So he spoke English, but their common language was Korean. They, had mm-hmm. a, they, they both spoke an uneducated Korean but they could communicate with each other. You know what do they call it? Like hand me down Korean. <laughs> yeah. You know? So they spoke Korean to each other. My father spoke English to us, and my mother spoke Spanish to us. So we grew up speaking English and Spanish, and uh so and grew up in a very Latin culture in New York. Grew up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. We were really, really poor. We grew up in. And, you know, those neighborhoods like you see in old movies, tenement houses, yeah. yeah. rat filled and no hot water and banging on the pipes so that the landlord would ter- turn on the, uh, they were called superintendents back then, the super. Mm. So they'd turn on the furnace so we could have so hot water. But what uh, it was it often? It was It was a time when it was so cold in the winter, we would have kerosene heaters in the bedrooms and stuff. And the only reason none of us, nobody died from carbon monoxide is because they were drafty. They were so, <laughs> un, uh, what do they call that? Uh, they were not energy-efficient apartments. It was cold and it was drafty, so that's probably what saved everybody's life. Everybody had kerosene heaters or had the wow. ovens on all night, and nobody, we never heard of anybody dying of carbon monoxide poisoning. <laughs> But uh, so anyway, so uh, yeah, we grew up there and, uh, and you know, for a long time I was kind of embarrassed to say that I grew up in the slums. But after seeing gangs in New York and finding out how <laughs> historic <laughs> the area I grew up in, uh, I, I'm very proud of having yeah. come up from there, you know, because it, it is a historic uh, area. I mean, yeah. every, every immigrant uh, wave that came through, Came to the United States to New York City. Ended up there at one point. The Irish, the Jews, the you know, Italian, everybody. Yeah, 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 you know, forget about it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, you know, Italian. Little Italy was right down the street. Chinatown was there. The I'm, you know, so yeah. I, I'm very proud of that heritage, and uh, and I'm kind of shocked when I when I go back because that area is really. Uh, improved a lot it's not the slums anymore and uh you see how things change over time some of the neighborhoods i lived in like later on i I moved to brooklyn and some of the neighborhoods i lived there were on the cusp of being slums you know but now they're like multi multi-million dollar buildings the the brownstones of uh park slope for instance they talk about those are expensive homes now Mm -hmm. they were expensive back then and um, I remember the last place I lived in Park Slope, like I said, it was like it was sort of slums and sort of not, you know, and, uh, but it was really safe yeah. because uh, the mafia had a, a very strong presence there. So young punks like you could run around the neighborhood harassing people, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's good. I'm just kidding. No, no, you're yeah. good, you're
0: good. When did you start playing trumpet?
1: I started playing trumpet in junior high school in the seventh grade. I wanted to play trumpet because, you know, I saw this movie uh, on TV when I was 10, a movie called Young Man with a Horn starring Kirk Douglas. But all the trumpet parts are played by by Harry James. And I Mm -hmm. remember being a kid, and and it sounds weird today because children don't go through this. They're too busy with their Nintendos Mm -hmm. or Xboxes. But I remember hearing the sound of the trumpet. And I got obsessed. I had to make that sound. So I didn't get around to getting a trumpet or actually playing by the time, I, uh, till I got to junior high school, seventh grade. But by then I had gotten books and learned the fingerings and everything. Yeah. So when I first picked up a trumpet, I could play a C scale, you know, and I, I was really into it. Yeah. Really into it. Did you learn how to read
0: in middle school as well? Or was oh that yeah, something?
1: it yeah. was all part of, The, you know, the learning process. You didn't just learn to play an instrument. You learned how to read it, too. Yeah. And, uh, sure, yeah. How important do you think that is? Reading? Yes. Well, um, it's kind of like this. Can you imagine going through life without reading, being able to read, you know? Um, If you're going to, if you're going, if you want to be a musician, You can't limit yourself to be an ear player. There's a lot of work out there that you won't be able to do if you can't read. Because you go to play with a band, you are not going to rehearse in a garage for three months and learn their songs. They're going to put music in front of you, and and you're going to have to be able to cop the style and understand and get all the right notes like in a day or two and then perform it that night or record it. You know, you don't even get a day. You go to a studio and here's the the chord changes, here's the stuff, and you play it. So if you don't do that, you limit yourself to playing by ear and playing with other guys who play by ear. And unless you're extremely talented, you can't get away without reading. I know people that don't read, but they could hear something one time and and have it down.
0: Yeah, their retention is...
1: Yeah, it's exactly. just amazing. And not only their ear, they could they could listen to something one time and know what the chords are. They they could find mm-hmm. it immediately. Yeah. I mean, there's very few and far between that yeah. could do that. But, uh, you know, and then the great rhythm players, you know, all have retention. Uh, great ret- uh, retention, yeah. the guys like, uh, I've seen Greg Filling Gaines mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and the like. they They start jamming. I remember one time I saw him Jamming with a, uh, with um, with a trio, and they started playing songs from the seventies. Uh, you know, they were just playing by memory. Uh, Ricky Lawson was playing drums. Wow. Did I mention that? And uh, every hit, every chord, everything exactly like the record. You know, how do they remember that? Mm-hmm. You know, they just picked the song and started playing it. And uh, you know, rhythm players I've noticed like great drummers. I used to do uh, Dancing with the Stars and and Teddy Campbell's fantastic drummer. Yes. I've seen him at rehearsal. He's looking at the music the first time and then he never looked at the music again. He had it down. I mean, it wasn't just you know, all the accents, all the syncopations and all that stuff on the funk tunes and and the R&B tunes. He had him down. Never had to look at the music again. I said, how do you do that, you know? But that's a a, a gift, you yes. know. But yeah. yes. Reading is important if you want to expand your horizons as a musician. You know, if you just want to be a wedding player or something like that, you don't have to read. But I think anybody who wants to become a musician Mm -hmm. wants to be able to bring as much to the party as they can. The more you bring, the more you can do the more you get paid. <laughs> and it also gives you the confidence to walk in and demand some money yeah. because you could do it all. Yeah. Anyway, that's...
0: Where did you... Uh, did you end up studying music after high school? Uh, did you get a degree in all,
1: you know, the Hoshabang? <laughs> no. Actually, I was working so much in high school that, uh, you know, we were... Like I tell you, we were very poor. So when I started working... As a musician I, you know I was really happy to make the money and there was a lot of work around I was yeah. I was by the, by my last senior year by my senior year of high school I was working um, all week at a nightclub yeah. and I was still going to school you know and, and making some, some pretty good bucks and um, so I went to college for less than a semester. I went, I went to L.A. City College, and uh, I, just, I realized that school is not for me. Mm. Kind of ADD, you know? <laughs> I did well in school, though. Yeah. I did, I, well, not, I went to um, the High School of Performing Arts, okay. which is what they made the movie fame about. Yeah. At, you know, now there's lots of performing arts high schools, but at that time, I think uh, there were only two in the whole country. And that was performing arts high school and music in our high school, and they were both related high schools. But uh, we just—I forgot my train of thought. Oh, um, uh, we're talking
0: about school, and uh, if you pursued higher education. Oh yeah. After, after.
1: So you know, when I finished high school, I was—I just was working so much yeah. that uh, I didn't see a need mm-hmm. to go to college, and also probably. Because we weren't a middle class family, you know. And I think in middle class families, a lot of pressure to, you know, like a formula for life and success. You move on to college, and you get a job, and right. da, da, da. buy a big house, and yeah, yeah. That that didn't exist in in my home. Um, they were happy to see that I was so enthusiastic about music, and yeah. and. And I was working, and I wasn't in gangs or anything like that. They were so they just encouraged to go ahead, you know, do what what you're doing, and and I just did. And like it was a great time, yeah, because there was a lot of work, yeah. There was a lot of club work. There was all kinds of stuff. So I I didn't think that uh, one of the things I remember all my friends that did come from middle class families, they all they all said, well, yeah, you know, I mean, there were music students too, and they said. You go to college, you study music, but you have to have something to fall back on. Mm. And I know now that that was their parents talking. Mm. You know, with me, the, you, you know that you have to have something to fall back on. And that was like Betty; you were going to fail. The failure was not an option <laughs> because, see, we, you know, when you're poor, you go, "This, this is it. Yeah. I'm not. I don't have any options. I do this well. I, I'm, I'm succeeding." Mm-hmm. I ain't gonna worry about falling back on, cause and then also I had this kind of innate faith that everything is gonna work. Because, gosh, I got through poverty. You know, wow. uh, I mean, even today I, I went through some uh, tough times uh, recently hmm. when my my wife uh, got sick and eventually passed away, and uh, well, I got left with a lot of debt and the the probability that I was going to lose my house and all that stuff, which to some people that would be devastating. But I remember to me, I never had a house before. If I don't have a house now, it's not a big deal. I've been poor before. So it's Uh, not, you know, it's not the end of the world to be poor, you know, but I guess maybe that kind of positive outlook, you know, uh, kept me cheerful in, in those times. And I was able to uh, persevere, you know, yeah. and get back on my feet. You know. Did you have a good support system
0: during that time? Like friends that you could reach out to, um, kind of let them know about the situation or if they um, wanted to extend a hand of any sort? Financially, you mean? Well, not fi- maybe financially, but, you know, just maybe, uh, you know, emotional support during
1: that time. Oh yeah, yeah. wow, well, That was an interesting time because my, my really good friends were there. You know, they were just there. I think a good friend is a person that's just there. You don't have to talk. And they don't have to offer advice. And and when you're going through something like that, like illness and death, the last thing you want to hear is advice. Hmm. You just want somebody to be there. You know, and, uh, but I understand because when you lose somebody, they lost them too, so they kind of need, you know, some sort of, they're going through some grief too. Yeah. So they're offering all this advice, but I remember at that point, at that time, when I was going through it, I didn't, uh, I didn't realize. I said I would tell some people, just shut up. I didn't ask you for advice, you know. You know, I would just tell them to shut up, stop giving me all this advice, you know. But I realized now they had to do it too because they were grieving as well. Mm. But uh, also during that time, I, I, I distanced myself from. Quite a few people mm-hmm. because i realized that uh, they were not uh, really i was never really bonded with them mm-hmm. you know and that was that was a true time when when they proved it, you know that they weren't really that caring
0: yeah yeah so anyway a no. uh, little bit earlier you mentioned oh uh, I, I, sh-
1: bit- I do want to add one thing yes My biggest support system was my son. Mm. Is he your only son? Yeah, he's my only son. He's 28 now. Wow. He was 24 when his mom passed away. And I remember the first thing he said was, I'm glad I'm not 14 right now. Mm. Uh, And he's just, he's an absolute reflection of her Mm. and uh, said all the right things when I needed help. And, uh, yeah, he... That's awesome. It was solid, and, and we helped each other. It's yeah, been four years. So, yeah. we're, and we're still, you know, here for each other. It's gratitude because a lot of people ask me if I felt bitter that my wife was taken away from me, and I never felt bitter. You know, and I think that has a lot to do with faith in God. Yes, you know, and uh, accepting what he is. Right. And uh, but no, I as the time went by, I felt more and more and more and more grateful that I had. Yeah the years i was married 29 years wow. but i had 29 beautiful years with her and and uh, my son and, and so there's nothing but gratitude no bitterness no not at all there's no room for bitterness in yeah. in life that's good yeah. that's good
0: you mentioned ricky lawson a little bit earlier i don't know if this story is true or not i've heard this from multiple people but i i want i want to see if maybe you could verify it they said apparently that uh, ricky lawson got an endorsement with Rolex because he was a
1: timekeeper, I don't know if that's true or not. It doesn't uh, surprise me if he did. Uh, Ricky can get an endorsement <laughs> for anything. Yeah, refrigerators. <laughs> he, he has asked me if I want a free trumpet case.s He got he can get an endorsement. You know, he he was just such a jovial cat, and, and he had his politics really well. And he could talk. He spent a whole week in Stuttgart schmoozing Mercedes-Benz trying to get a, uh, a Mercedes-Benz from him. Wow. But, but he, he got a Mercedes-Benz gold watch from him. That's for sure. But he was good. He was good at it. He could go anywhere and walk out with free stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, well. I wouldn't put it past him yeah. if he did get a free Rolex. That's great. That's yeah. good. <laughs> you know, the, Ricky Lawson had had a strange fetish. He loved to detail cars he loved it it was like a passion for him yeah so sometimes you know uh we'd be at a venue somewhere and uh, phil's manager would show up or somebody important the promoter would show up or something and he'd offer to detail their car wow for and free for, or yeah oh my goodness he loved it. and he left it looking immaculate he loved that i <laughs> oh i hate washing i even hate Taking my car to car wash, you know. <laughs> but no, he he. That was a yeah. That was a big thing with him. He loved. He always had his stuff with him. Yeah. You know. Wow. And uh, yeah, Ricky Lawson was quite a character. Thanks for sharing that. I, didn't, I had no idea. That's oh, yeah.
0: that's that's pretty cool. I need to detail myself and
1: yeah. my car.
0: <laughs> yeah. You want to detail my car? <laughs> Harry, you've played with okay, uh, Tito Puente, Selena Cruz, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, The Four Tops. Temptations, Smokey Robinson, this goes on and on and on, right? The opportunities that you've gotten to work with such amazing artists, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, It was all, all a progression, you know, and it was all usually a direct, uh, directly accredited to one or two people that I had met along the line. You know, one of them was uh, Ernie Fields Jr., mm-hmm. who at the time... I didn't meet him as a uh, music contractor. I just met him as a fellow, a fellow musician at a recording, but he had an incredible mind. Cause I didn't see him again for another couple of years. And he remembered my name. He remembered where we met and all this kind of stuff. And so we became friends and, he, and before you know it, he started calling, excuse me. He started calling me for different jobs. And, um, and one of the people he introduced me to was this, this guy named H.B. Uh, Barnum, who is a pro- music producer, musical director, arranger, all that stuff. And he was working with Aretha at the time as his her musical director. So, you know, I, I started working with Aretha Franklin because of uh, Ernie and yeah. because of H.B. Prior to that, um, you know, I just... I started working with people that were involved with in Motown. I was in a group, in a band uh, called The Mighty Fire mm. in 1981, and uh, we had we had a record deal with Elektra Records. We put out two two albums, albums, not CDs, <laughs> albums. and uh, and somebody involved in that group indirectly was 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 a staff composer for um i think it was called joe bett which is the publishing company for motown so they started calling me to arrange and and play on recording sessions like so that's how i started playing with the uh, with the four tops and um and the temptations yeah. writing yeah. writing strings and horns for those for some of their later cds yeah and uh, and then eventually you know, it's a word of mouth. You meet people, and then yeah. I'd get hired to do a show with The Temptations. It was a great show when, when The Temptations and The Four Tops did a combined show. Yeah. And they did lots of them around the L.A. area in the early 80s. I think, well, see, I in, I, in 1983, I did this, um actually, it was the first show of its kind. It's called The 25th Anniversary of Motown mm. Celebration. Yeah. Uh, it was a huge show. It won a lot of Emmys and. And stuff, and later on, there were a lot of those kind of tribute shows and stuff like that. But that particular one was—I remember one of the most exciting moments was was seeing the Four Tops and Temptations on stage together. Yeah. and I think that that inspired people to to do tours with the both of them. And so, yeah, I used to play with those guys when they they really came into town because. Somehow I knew the guy who was calling the horn section and whatnot. You know. yeah. Another great moment when we did that, um, when we did uh, the 25th anniversary of Motown was was Michael Jackson. Uh, moonwalk. Did the Moonwalk. <laughs> he did and you were, you were, I was on stage oh right, right behind him when he did it. And everybody everybody like, Did you see that? Uh, but apparently, that's not a new move. He didn't create the move. It had been done for but years. But it was the first time it was... It was the first time we saw anybody do it in person. And, and I mean, I think it had been a long time since anybody had seen it. Yeah. I, I think mimes can do that. And, <laughs> and there's guys, you know, dancers and, and, and stuff from the 30s and 40s that, yeah. that did that kind of stuff. But it wasn't like Michael Jackson doing it. Mm-hmm. And it did look Fantastic. Yeah. That's a historic moment. That was a historic moment. You know,
0: because everybody looks it up on YouTube, like first time a moonwalk scene on on TV or whatever, and Michael Jackson pops up.
1: Also, Marvin Gaye's performance. Mm. That was one of the, that was nearing the end for him. Mm. And uh, I remember when we did that, we did that separate from the show, his segment. And uh, he did a couple of takes on that. Uh, if you if anybody out there has seen marvin Gaye's performance there, and boy he had each one of the takes were fantastic you know yeah and there were also a lot of acts that went on that and that didn't end up in the final product and i i i felt bad for them like good performances but did not have been included in the tv show was like yeah. oh poor guys yeah 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 you
0: also worked with tito puente Taylor Cruz.
1: What's that like? I went through a, a Latin stage uh, during the disco era in the mid '70s and stuff. Uh, well, prior to that, there were a lot of bands that used horns. I worked, you know, playing funk bands, R&B bands, mm-hmm. uh, what they call blue-eyed soul bands, yeah. and you yeah. know, Chicago was popular and all this. So there were a lot of clubs that played, that hired horn bands, and we'd play whatever was played on the radio, yeah. in which a lot of the music had horns. But during the disco era, they couldn't hire bands to play that music because, you know, disco music was very overproduced with lots of strings yeah. and stuff like that. So these clubs started closing down, and then they started building these discos where they, all they did is play records. And so the work started, you know, dying for mm. club bands. And, but the only clubs that still had horn bands are, were salsa clubs. Hmm. You know. salsa trumpets and trombones and saxes are, yeah. you know, main staple in salsa music. Yeah. And at that time, it was salsa brava, you know, which was heavily influenced by jazz. And, um, you know, back in those days, I mean, you had Celia Cruz and people like that. But you know what? The vocalist wasn't that important. You know, you go see Ray Barreto's band, for instance, or Eddie Palmieri's yeah. band, Tito Puentes band. It really didn't matter who was the singer, you know. And they were doing just fine. They're Típica 73 yeah, and all these yeah. groups. They didn't they didn't uh, push the as the singer because it it was the music and it was like jazz influence on that. And then I think later on in the in the eighties, sometime, I think uh record companies decided well let's market this music cuz apparently it has a big audience yeah. and, uh, and prior to that too they started preparing that because they started calling you know latin music uh, uh salsa. salsa that yeah. word didn't exist before yeah. the mid 70s and uh, but that was a way to categorize the music in record stores you know mm-hmm. so now you look for salsa and in in a record bin that said salsa and yeah. you find all these, uh, these artists. And, uh, so, but then in the eighties, like I said, they, they started promoting the artist. They looked for, uh, good looking young singers to promote. And, uh, and the music got a little watered down Well, they took out all the jazz influence, except for the harmonies. They, they still use really good, you know, harmonies and stuff. Um, progressions chords yeah but they took all the solos out you don't hear trumpet solos or trombone solos and salsa these days yeah and the arrangements are very very clever very well written but they're not they don't go over the top with musical interludes and stuff like they used to do in the old days right so anyway i got involved with playing salsa and a lot of times, uh, like Tito Puente would come to town and but he was, for some reason, he didn't have everybody or they couldn't make it or I don't know, maybe the promoter wasn't paying enough for him to bring the whole band, so I would be one of the guys they would call to come and fill in. and also uh, the same thing would happen with Celia Cruz. and then after a while, actually Celia Cruz would start requesting me when she wow. came to LA. And uh, same thing with A.D. Palmieri and groups like that. Yeah. Just uh, got really active. I mean, it seems like a lifetime, but I think I only played salsa full-time for about three years. But it seems like a huge part of my life. Yeah. I was working seven nights a week, and after hours on Fridays and Saturdays, and uh, it was so much fun. I was in my 20s having a great time, drinking and partying <laughs> and playing and all this stuff. It was really... And also, you know... Uh, there was some disco recording in the daytime, and, yeah. and I would record and arrange for horns and strings for different, um, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, it seemed like it was on the top of the world at that time, working on days and, and working at night. And, yeah. You know. How so. many albums have you been a part of to date? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I think if you look up my discography, you could find a lot of them. I don't know. You know, I I wish I had been on more hit records you know but um just a bunch you yeah. know with the Fort Thompson, and aretha yeah. and marvin gay uh, i did marvin Gaye's last album okay right before he passed away yeah and uh, smoky robinson i recorded on lady gaga's one of her albums so i i never kept track of that stuff uh, but apparently people don't have a life and they do because my full discography is, is online somewhere. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen it. It's crazy. You're like, I don't remember doing this. And I, oh, I remember doing that. Yeah. You know? I played on, uh, like, I think I, I played on a lot of Juan Gabriel's mm-hmm. uh, music since the 70s. You know, Juan Gabriel was an interesting guy. He was extremely creative. Yeah. Hard to play with. Live, he, because he had an MD. Because it was hard to follow him, because he was so creative. He create verses on the spot, wow. and and you know, add lyrics and melodies to to a verse. And so the conductor had to be listening, listening, and then here we go, you know, <laughs> because he he just he was undisciplined. He would sing his heart out till he lost his voice during you know and and you know if you're supposed to do a 2 hour show you go 3 hours he didn't care he got into it he was he was a amazing guy very prolific he wrote so many songs and but he had his his problems i mean yeah. he didn't give album credits he once somebody asked him if we could have album credit and and he said well then you have to pay me you know wow of, you know so he was kind of that way but I don't know if, how much of that was for, for show and for his, his, you know, to create a certain legacy about yeah, him. And, yeah. But uh, I remember there were fun moments and they were like, what? You know, the guy was so successful. He didn't have to be the way he was. Yeah. You know, so.
0: How many times have you toured the world?
1: Well, what do you mean the world? I, I never played in Antarctica. You I had- never played in the North Pole. <laughs> When they say Phil Collins World Tour. Yeah. How many times have you? In 30 years, I think we went on around the world at least four times, you know, at least. And um, did you like it? Did you enjoy touring? I hated it. Really?
0: (laughs) No, man. You know, some people do. You've seen that interview with Michael Jackson where they tell him, hey, Michael, just say that you're having fun on this tour or something like that. And he says, I don't like touring. I don't like it. And he's like, okay, but at least show a little bit of enthusiasm.
1: And then he says, I love touring. Who said that? Michael Jackson. Oh. Well, <laughs> I don't know. See, I, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting irony because I've never been the kind of person that wanted to travel or was interested in going places. I just wasn't. And uh, somehow I was dragged around the world, <laughs> and I'm glad I was. Yeah, um, you know, touring with a with a guy like Phil Collins is is amazing. First of all, it's like a vacation. You know, everything is first class. They treat you really well. Nothing, uh, nothing. Uh, the priority is is the music and the musicians. You know, so they make sure the schedules are mm-hmm. cool. And, you know um you don't have to get up early take planes or anything they have private planes and, and they make sure that you you know you get enough sleep uh leave leave the hotel go go to the airport and and you know when you when you have a private plane you don't have to go through the airport you, know, you go to a private airport you drive right up to the plane get on the stress of traveling isn't there wow you know one o'clock flights in the afternoon and the six in the morning crap. <laughs> like a lot of bands, you got to you gotta be in the lobby at 4 a.m. to take a 6 a.m. flight. And, oh, and day after day. Of, no, none of that. So, I mean, Phil himself, uh, the artist himself, doesn't want to overwork himself, you know? Yeah. And, and it's, it, it's created for fun. And plus, you know, early on when Phil was really, really, really on top of the world, uh, it was easy to bring the family. Because we would spend five, six weeks in Germany alone. We'd, we'd stay a week at every city. We And then, you know, bring the family that live out with you. And then you go to the next town, they come out and like that. You know, we weren't flying around every day. You know, and, and we I remember Australia, five weeks, Latin America. You know, we, we would play multiple times in one week yeah. in one city. So my wife came with me almost all the time and and my son did all, until we couldn't pull him out of school anymore but uh it was it didn't suck <laughs> that's <laughs> it, good <laughs> it was really amazing i mean some people do tours and and they have to leave the family home yeah. for some reason well my wife you know she was she was a homemaker so you know, it was not uncommon for me to say, "Hey, let's go to France. When? Tomorrow? Bam, we go." <laughs> you know, but it's not like a lot of people have work yeah, and they right. can't take off and yeah. whatnot. And yeah. We didn't have those um, restrictions, so a lot of people I could see that they they leave town, they leave their families at home, and you know, you leave for long periods of time. It it, it probably wasn't enjoyable, yeah. but I, for me, it was.
0: That's awesome. You know?
1: You also formed a big band for Phil Collins. How did hmm. that go about? Well, that started because you know, um, in every at every tour, when it came time to um, to introduce the members of the band, you know, it would start one way, but as the tour went on, it got it evolved into a whole thing. I remember one tour, the introduction of the guys in the band to, took twenty minutes. You know, and he, he it, it turned into shtick, you know, because he's he's got a comic mind, so he would it would turn into a, a whole thing. And one of the tours, I think it might have been, yeah, ninety four, ninety five. Um, the keyboard player, um, uh, decided to play background music to his talking, so you know, this Genesis to an invisible touch. <laughs> He would play it like a Vegas lounge piano player. You know, so that kind of evolved. And then before you know it, Phil said, can you add horns to that? So I wrote kind of a big bandy for four horns, yeah. you know. And then he he started talking about wanting to do, a you know, a big band. Because he loved Buddy Rich and he loved Sonny Payne and basing and all that, so he said, oh, "I'll do a big band." Do it. And and Phil is a doer. When he gets an idea, yeah, he gets on it right away. So this wasn't right away, but yeah, in 1996, he said, "Let's do a big band. Let's do this and this and this and this and this." And his idea. There's a whole documentary on it, the making of Phil Collins' Big Band. He he wanted to. Uh, you want to do Buddy Rich charts? You want to do Louis Bellson stuff? You know, I said you can't do that. If you're gonna do that, you know, just get a bunch of charts and go rehearsing your living room every, every once a week. You know, you can't do that. You have to do original stuff. And so, yeah, like, well, let's let's try to, um, you know, let's try to transcribe or, or get some of your Genesis tunes, some of your tunes, you know, adapt them for uh, jazz. Big man. Yeah. So we talked about all the possibilities. He gave me every CD that Genesis ever made, every CD he's ever made, and I listened to all this stuff and thought, well, this, these melodies are, you know, are adaptable. These are not, and lined it up. And so, I don't think I needed approval. You just said whatever you think. Wow. So then I got um, an arranger. Well, I started to assign arrangers for the different uh, characteristics of the tunes. Like he wanted to do "Invisible Touch," Count Basie style, mm. so I got Sammy Nestico go to arrange that. You know, he wanted this, that one. Then you know, so I, I remember Susudio is a big production tune, so I got the guy who did a lot of the arranging for the Tonight Show band. You know, big production. And he wrote a great arrangement. In the, and John Clayton was a great musician and uh, has his own band, um, Clayton Hamilton, big band. He really is extraordinary. When you hear one of his arrangements, like from the first bar, the way he voices chords and stuff, you know it's jazz. This mm. This ain't Vegas. This is jazz. Yeah. So... He wrote a, a fair amount of charts that that needed that touch to also to make the big band legitimate to have some serious sounding jazz. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a lot of big bands out there, and like I say, a lot of them sound like Vegas and yeah, yeah hey, hey, you know. But uh, yeah, John Clayton added the the legitimacy of jazz to the big band, so we had all this stuff, and and and, and Phil doesn't read. Really, right? So, we, we, we. Uh, this is the one wonderful thing about having money, you know. He said, "How much is it going to cost for you guys to record it in LA?" And then he could have the tapes to, to study the music from. Oh well, okay. So we got a budget together, and we we're in a studio, and I hired a whole bunch of guys to record the music, and uh, and then sent them the things, and and then he started practicing. He can't read. Yes, he has to play it by memory or uh, and memorize the stuff. So it was a long process wow, for him to man. learn. This is all this is all in that documentary, the yeah. making of the Phil Collins Big Band. And uh, he was going nuts because he didn't think he was gonna be able to learn it at first. And he did, because he's got great musical instincts. Yeah. You know, we rehearsed a lot yeah. with him. First with just the rhythm section and the four horns, the vice street horns. We rehearsed a lot till he got all the hits and breaks, and then finally we got the big band together, which was the WDR band from from Germany. Uh, I think it's Cologne, Germany. And they're a radio station band, which in Germany they still have great musicians, mm. really great band. So anyway, so they they did the first uh, tour with us, and uh, yeah, well, I think it was ten weeks or something like that. We toured all over Europe, played all the great jazz festivals. Yeah. And um, and then, then we did it again in 98. And um, this time he, because when we played Montreux Jazz Festival in 1996, he met somebody through Quincy Jones, who used to be a professor, the head of music at Northern Illinois University. Yeah. So he made that contact, and then when we did it in 98, he called him to put together the horns, all the fill-in-the-blanks in the, blanks and the big man. And so he called um, a bunch of his alumni, who, to my surprise, were great, great, great musicians. You Because know? yeah. a lot of times people become college professors and stuff, and, and they don't practice as much. And, man, these guys came. They were roaring musicians and all professors in different universities around the country so we did a 10-week tour of that and we recorded a cd which is that hot night in paris mm-hmm. and uh it was it was very cool it was fun and, uh, you know i will put this on record and say <laughs> it was probably the highest paying big band gig ever on <laughs> earth for some of us yeah, yeah you know yeah yeah uh, I never told that to anybody. but <laughs> There it goes. Well, it's on record now. I so. remember when, uh, this is years ago. They were talking about Buddy Rich. He was a side man. He was playing drums for Harry James, Big Ben. It was like the highest paid side man, you know, in in history. A thousand dollars a week. This is like, oh the, man. This is like in the '60s, which which is probably yeah. a lot of money yeah. in the '60s. I mean, you could you could live on one hundred fifty dollars a week back then, with a thousand a week was sounded really extravagant. Yeah. But uh, the kind of money some of us made on the Phil Collins Big Band was, was, uh, I'm sure, record shattering. <laughs> it was never documented. Yeah. <laughs> what characteristics would you say a successful
0: musician should have?
1: Hmm. Well. Most of which I don 't have characteristics, <laughs> I think number one uh to be a great team player, be able to work well within a group. Uh, I'm not always a great team player, which is one of the reasons i I've always had horn sections that I work with best because uh I grew up with a ghetto mentality i I did. You know, I think maybe if I would have gone to college, I would have learned protocol and picking order and stuff like that. One of the biggest mistakes I made in my early days doing studio work and stuff, I walked in with all this enthusiasm from having done things a certain way all my life. You know, hey, uh, maybe we should phrase it this way. Or maybe we should play this note long or this note short. That voicing doesn't sound good. Let's change it when it wasn't my place to do that, mm-hmm. you know. I wasn't doing that to call attention. It just didn't sound good to me. Yeah. But uh, protocol there is you got an arranger who arranged the thing, and you just shut up, and if there's something that doesn't sound right, he has to change it. And uh, But no. So anyway, I always kind of was drawn to creating jobs myself with my own horn section, mm-hmm. doing the writing so that I didn't have to uh, sit there and... Not that I was a snob, but I always wanted the best possible product, you know. Excellent. Yeah, I just wanted the best possible product. And a lot of times, you know, I mean, I've worked for great arrangers where it sounded great, you know. But then also I've worked with arrangers that were keyboard arrangers and and really didn't have a full vision of what horns can do. So then you say, listen to this. You know, and you might change the phrasing or put an effect in a, on a note, and they go, "Oh, that sounds great! Yeah, let's add that in there." You know, they didn't know you could do that. You know, there was a long period of time when arrangers, you know, especially when uh, sequencers and all that came yeah. into play, you had these keyboard players writing horn arrangements and very uncharacteristic, like horn parts. So, anyway, but that—that's one thing. Teamwork. Uh, punctuality all the professional stuff that uh, that any particular career would would require yeah um um, your appearance you know dress for the job you want you know uh, so i think your appearance has a lot to do with first impressions when you go when you meet new people when you go play somewhere uh full knowledge of music um harmony and, and theory that's good chords yeah. that's really important because there will come a time when things are going wrong in the studio and nobody knows how to fix it but you know how because you studied this stuff and you, you know you know how to solve the problem yeah and that that helps you get hired you know um I think that um, contributing um, to a project, for me, um, when I hire guys, I like to see guys that uh, are enthusiastic about trying something new and different and that are not snobs. Oh, I don't play hip-hop. Or, oh, no, I don't play country. No, there's there's a certain appreciation that Mm. you have to have as a musician for all forms of music. Right, right. You know? Because if you don't appreciate it, you really don't know how it works. And if you don't know how it works, you can't play it yeah. when you're asked to play it. You know. So, I mean, like salsa, for instance, understanding their rhythms and to play precisely within those rhythms yeah. is, is important. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, I could play it. And then they play it, and they, not, they don't have it yeah. because they never really Took it seriously and understood the intricacies of it. Right. Same thing with R and B and funk and stuff like that. The guitar patterns, the drum patterns, and stuff. As a horn player, you have to understand what's going on in there, and and all your horn parts have to fit in, the, like a glove, in it. And I think like an amateur horn section always sounds out of pocket, you know, mm-hmm. because they they don't understand the the little nuances of whatever rhythms are going on with it. The guitars playing, or you know, and one of the obvious things is uh, in 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 pop music is the backbeat mm, two and four, yeah, and then you know you have a horn section that's not really you know knowledgeable, yeah. Whenever they have notes on two and four, they flam with the drums, you know, you know, right there with yeah. that and then you know a lot of people say or i always say it, you know your lead horn player is the drummer you know and uh and that's true with all music i think that that uh has african roots you know whether it be two and four or it it'd be another kind of, like a reggaeton or something yeah, like that yeah but those are important beats you know and uh and you have to be very conscious of it while you're playing, so when you have a note that lands on any one of those important beats, you have to be right yeah. on with them. Uh, so understanding different styles and that goes under the heading of versatility, you know, don't be a snob. Um, uh, don't be too cool for the room. Mm-hmm. you know uh, one thing I don't like is is when I'm playing and I'm having fun and i'm I'm being exuberant about it, and then the guy next to me is like, you know, <laughs> couldn't care less. I can't. I don't want to be around a downer like yeah. that, you know, or yeah. somebody who thinks he's too good for 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 doing a little dance move with me. Right. You know that yeah. that really bothers me. Uh, this is my personal thing, but it's important to to have a certain amount of um, enthusiasm when you play because band leaders like that. Yeah. You know, artists like that. You know, stage the, presence, stage presence, yeah. and and I'll give you further showmanship. Mm. Showmanship is something that that has to come from the heart because you're so involved in the music. Uh, use the word engage. You get so engaged in your music, man. When you hear the drummer and then the fills, and then your body starts to move, and you <laughs> go, "Yeah, baby," and then you start playing. You know, it, it encourages the drummer. Yeah. And it encourages the bass player. Right. And, and and every it's, it's contagious. It goes around the band because you're having such a great time and you're encouraging each other. Ultimately, the artist gets encouraged. He doesn't know it, but he's getting excited because <laughs> of me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, and then the audience get, gets the thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, showmanship is important uh, because we live in an age where where people go to concerts, they're not only listening; they're they're watching. And if you got all these musicians standing in the background, you know, with their hands mm-hmm. in their pockets and picking their nose, I always say that you know, when, when a person pays 300 dollars for a ticket to see a show, mm-hmm. they want to see musicians on stage that are bigger than life. That's good. They don't yeah. want to see an average Joe for standing sure. there, you know. So, I, I think that's important. Showmanship is very important. You know, the complete knowledge of your instrument. And, um, and I, I could go further on that, but, I mean, those are the basic things. Yeah. Getting along with people, you mm-hmm. know. Um, oh, yeah, the people I pick to travel with me have to be able to, you know, you, when you're traveling on the road, it's a family. Yeah. Everybody has to has to get along. And I've made the mistake of hiring the wrong people sometimes. They go, oh, whatever. You know, because they create friction and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So it, it, that's important to be able to to get along with everybody and um, just be a sharpshooter. Bring a lot to the party. Yeah, you know, bring bring a lot, because you'll be asked to use it all at one point in your career. Right, right. You know, you'll be uh, at different points of your career. You'll be asked just to do this, to do that, and you know, have being very knowledgeable. But one thing that I I think is important to know <clears throat> nowadays because, because there is less and less work, a lot of musicians um, in the horn world, for instance, a lot of young people come out of universities, come to L.A., they're all brilliant players. But one thing that's important to know that I've learned is is you can't please everybody you know um you can't want to be great at everything you know you have to you have to identify what it is about your playing that is special and and see if you could emphasize that because that's going to separate you from everybody mm-hmm. else you know it could be your sound it could be your concept it could be your i mean it's great like if you have four trumpets everybody plays the same great but there's got to be a time when you you have your own approach to it right, and right. that's it. and the thing about it that i've learned cuz there's a lot of trumpet players that don't like the way i play and a lot of a lot of uh, musical directors don't like the way i play and but that's not my fault cuz this is the way i play i, I have never <laughs> yeah. i have never tried to conform right you right. know, put it that way. And that's part of my ghetto mentality. Yeah. You know, no, I'm not gonna play the way you guys play. This yeah. is the way I wanna play. Yeah. So but the thing about it was that out of all the people that don't like the way I play, there were there were three or four people in my whole career that really liked the way yeah. I played. And those are the ones that made my career. Wow. Because I didn't have a shabby career. You know, the ones that did like what I I Brought made a career out of it for me. Wow. So I was never worried that I, That's good. I couldn't sit there and do that and sit there and do that. It, if I, I guess, if I really wanted to, I could have conformed and toned down, um, you know, the way I play and yeah. all this kind of stuff so I could fit in, like doing a Broadway show and stuff like that. It was never of interest to me to do that. Uh, I don't think my personality would allow me to do that because I'm. Kind of fidgety, Mm -hmm. so to sit around and you know, doing that kind of stuff would be very. It it would take a lot of effort on my part, and so I I I was drawn to things that that called for me to be myself. Yeah, and uh, and those are the things that I built a whole career on. That's good. You know, I didn't look for it; it just came to me. Yeah. You know, somebody said, "I like the way he sounds. I want him." You know, Phil Collins for his his thirty years working. She's no, yeah. I, that's... Re- I remember hearing about a guy. How long have you been with the band? Oh, 17 years. 17 years. That's a lot of years. And here I am playing with Phil Collins for 30 of them. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> you know, yeah, but uh, yeah, that's uh, good. so that that that's uh, that's an important thing. You You have to be good at everything, but don't try to please everybody because yeah. you'll miss out on what you're great at. People always say, hey, "Mr. Kim, Mr. Kim, how, how do I become a great trumpet player?" Well, first thing, what's great about you? Mm. You know, what's great about your playing? And then, and when, if you focus on that, nobody else in the world will be able to do what you're doing, yeah. because that's great about you. So, um, you yeah. know, I've I've gotten a certain stage in my life where I, you know I, I I feel good with what I do. I feel confident and. Uh, and I want to keep bringing it. When, yeah. uh, you know, there's there's people who want it and people who hate it. I don't care. <laughs> I'm doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing just fine. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think part of the happiness uh, and satisfaction in life is to to stay true to yourself. Yeah. You know, not have to conform to things that doesn't come natural. I mean, I think there's personalities that do it well, that that can fit in anywhere. Do it, I, I'm not that guy. You know, I'm not that guy. I think a lot of it has to do, like I, I joke about it, but it's true. It's my ghetto mentality, and and coming out of uh, coming out of the ghetto at a time when when Koreans were not or Asians particularly were not looked at very positively. You know, I was born when the Korean War was raging, and it was just a few years after the war with the Japanese, so you know asian people were not considered uh to be um to have a voice okay. hmm. you know stereotypical asians were quiet and they were so quiet that they they would say they were you never know what they're thinking so you know it was just a lot of yeah. stereotypes that yep. i tried to not be so in and in it's even though naturally I felt non-confrontational sometimes, sure. and, but there I was not conforming. I really tried to not be stereotypical, yeah. because I got pissed off. I played trumpet. Trumpet's a demonstrative instrument, you know. And and you know I don't blow me off, you know. Uh, Asians Asians at one time were invisible. People were easily blow you off as being non-existent you know it wasn't until i don't know what year it was where people realized asian students were really smart so now everybody yeah. thinks <laughs> of asians as being really smart still nerds but smart yeah. but they didn't even think of us as smart back then you know it was just like a thorn in in society yeah. see who are these people you know if you were even noticed i would think mostly that uh, i felt like uh, invisible yeah you know uh so it made me more demonstrative also with my latin uh being mixed with the latin cultural yeah it, it helped me because i i felt like i had a certain kind of identity and sure. it and it, it it was very compatible to the way i am myself you know and so um uh that had a lot to do just just coming out of my shell and, and and not caring if I fit in or not. After a while, you know. Yeah. So that's that's my story about about uh, music and you know trying to figure out what you do that's different from everybody yeah. else. And and uh, that's I think that's most gratifying mm. when you get a chance to be that way, to play music that you love and make a living and and have fun on stage. You know, some of the shows that we well, a lot of the shows we do with Foot Collins, for instance, you know, when we walk off that stage, it feels like like when you see a tennis championship where where the guy who wins or the girl who wins just throw herself on the ground in 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 uh, gratitude. Because that's what it is. When they when they Throw themselves on the ground after winning one of those uh, huge championships. It's, it's gratitude. Yeah. They put so much effort into this game, and and to get to that part, you know, at that point, you know, there's so many games before that right. led up to that championship exactly. game, yeah. and they they just throw themselves. That that sort of feels like when you finish a concert. That's mm-hmm. really fulfilling. You just want to throw yourself on the ground. And say, thank you god for the opportunity to do this you know it's it's that intense you know you yeah. don't get that all the time when you're when you're in the music business yeah but i i'm addicted to it i need to have those even if i even if i pay, play uh, or accept a low paying salsa gig at a local club if I can walk out of there going, Yeah it's so much fun. <laughs> you know, it's worth it. It's it really is worth it because I thrive on that. My 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 whole existence thrives yeah. on that. That's good. You know. That's so good. anyway.
0: Harry, what do you think about the current state of the music industry?
1: Ah well, you know, I'm I'm not the kind of the person to to talk about that because I've never worried about stuff. I know the music industry is in really bad shape right now because nobody's selling records. You know, only like there's this small percentage of top, high-end people that are selling records, like Beyonce or yeah. Taylor Swift and stuff like that. But your average person that maybe twenty years ago would have been selling a few million records, I ain't selling nothing, you know. And um, you know, of course, a lot of it has to do with technology. You know people could rip off your music and, and they found ways to, to to play your music without having to pay a whole lot of money. And uh, I think it's uh, I think it's a drag. but but see, I'm not involved in the writing of music or the writing songs and stuff, but if I was, I'd be really pissed off that I'm not getting paid for that. Uh, you find that artists are all touring now. Because they're not making the record sales right. money, and right. there's still big money in touring if you draw people, yeah. you know. Um, but I've seen a difference, even with Phil Collins when, when, when he was on top of the world, with, with selling records, and he was selling more records around the world than anybody else. And
0: there were a lot of perks
1: on the tour, you know. Lots of perks that aren't there now, because it's not about the records, it's about the live performances. Yeah.
0: And I mean, it's still
1: wonderful. But some of the perks are, and I know not to expect them, it's, it's kind of cool. and uh, But the music industry is tough. I mean, um, politically speaking, um, the union busting uh, has hurt the music business. It's every man for himself. Um, they're doing a lot of the people who are standing firm in in LA, with especially with films and stuff like that, they're not winning because companies are just taking their music and recording it in other places, like like Prague, and you know, or states that have uh, no u- uh, unions are not allowed, and so they their orchestras and stuff don't don't have to file a union contract. You know, it it, it I think it boils down to um, a certain amount of. Bean counting. You got these accountants that are hired to to get things done as cheaply as possible. Right. Right. Nowadays. Everybody. But it doesn't mean they're not making money. They just want to do things as cheaply as possible. I mean, I know that there was a there was a dispute a friend of mine had about doing something for a movie. And uh it was going to cost the producer $75,000 more to do it through the union. And the movie was probably going to make huge profits. And, and he pointed that out to the guy. He says, it's going to cost you just $75,000. $75, and he say, simply said, that's $75,000 less going into my pocket. And he just did not care about getting this thing done through the union uh so it's kind of like the climate uh the way things are being seen today uh, you know in 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 the event world, you know it used to be event world means uh, like corporations, big corporations used to have events all the time, parties and christmas parties and 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 all this kind of stuff, where they spent a lot of money. Uh, on entertainment and big banquets and stuff like that you know they're just not doing it anymore yeah. it's not like they're making less money big pharma and and big huge uh, insurance companies you know these big parties they used to throw they're not throwing it anymore and uh, partially because they don't want to make it seem like they're making big profits <laughs> show off um but if you look at their numbers, they are. They yeah. just they, I, they just figure, well, why do we have to do this? We don't need to spend that money. And uh, so, a lot of the musicians who used to work a lot of private events are not doing them anymore. Yeah, um, it's 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 something that if I was, well, if I'm gonna, you have to you have to really think hard if you wanted to become a musician nowadays. It's really hard. But the person that really wants to do it will not be worried or consider any of the the uh, obstacles in front of them, because exactly. I think that a real musician, like anything, they have to do it. It's not just that they want to do it; they have to it's, be. It's a, a certain drive. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter if I'm poor the rest of my life. I have to do it, you know. And uh, it's one of those. People ask me all the time, you know, the people that are no longer in the music business that maybe played in college and stuff, and they say, I I often wondered if I kept playing if I would have been Mm -hmm. successful. And my answer is, oh, if you could be talked out of it, you wouldn't have made it. Because, you know, you cannot be talked out of it. And then you just go and go. Yeah. You can make your life miserable, or your life could turn out amazing. Yeah. You know, uh, there's no guarantees of anything. But it, that's what makes musicians and artists so special, you know. Yeah. Because it's, it's um, like they say, devil may care. I don't yeah. care. I just have to play music. Yeah. I have to do it, you know. and. Well, you know, you won't be able to support a family, and then you get all this stuff from parents and people. No, you won't be able to do this. You won't be. Well, it doesn't matter, because those 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 become luxuries in a way. Having a family is a luxury, you know, mm. and and uh, but one day, it happens, and you find yeah, you can afford it, and <laughs> uh, it, it, it it can work. Yeah, but you have to have a lust and an obsession for it. Because if you're halfway through, yeah, you'll quit somewhere somewhere along yeah. the line. And you don't even have to worry about that. Because when that day comes, it'll just happen. You know, you say, Oh, I've had enough. Let me go go work at Costco. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so it's it's worth the chance one way or the other. You're not gonna die. Yeah. You know, but if you have to do it, do it. Yeah.
0: You know. That's good.
1: That's yeah. good, Harry. Name maybe two or three
0: accomplishments that you are really proud of?
1: Well, during my musical career, but has nothing to do with my musical career, is fatherhood. Raising my son. Yeah. You know, I think that thinking out of the box has been able to, enabled me to offer him insights on life uh, and hopefully has given him certain freedoms that you know, it's not like all right. It's a cookie cutter life. You you go to you do good in school. You you, you go to college. You get out of college. You get a job, and you do this, and you, and you get your promotions and like that. And it, 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 ah, that that really gives me the e b jeebies to think that my son would do that. You know, my son is in a creative field, much like me, and he loves it. And, and if anything, I feel proud that I can offer him that a life i mean if if he if he was another kind of person i i wouldn't have done that i would say okay go to college cuz if he was you know driven to go to college and become a ceo of a company yeah, okay that's fine <laughs> but my son had very artistic um, characteristics right from the beginning I said, go oh, enjoy it wow. you know and one somehow uh, it'll work it'll work that's one thing. Uh, for me, it's the same thing. I'm really proud that I had uh, a very um, free sort of lifestyle. You know, I, um, I did what I had to do because I wanted to, not because I had to. Mm. You know, I, I practiced, I learned about music, and then I went out and played. It was just I'm really proud of that and, and a lot I, I think of myself as, as Forrest Gump. Yeah. I I didn't plan on anything. Things just happened. You know, I was yeah. in the right place at the right time. Right. I don't think I'm nowhere near as talented as some people out there. I didn't network like other people have, and I'm not socially graced like a lot of people i don't I don't advise people to be like me, lazy <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not kidding. I just you know just kind of going through life and one thing one thing leads to another, another thing leads to another, another thing leads to another and uh, before you know it, you know, years have gone by, and I find, oh, I did okay, yeah, you know um and and again, a lot of that is, it has to do with <clears throat> my approach. In, in playing music, you know, I love to play and I try to demonstrate it every time I play it. Um, and again, not everybody's going to like that. Yeah. And the ones who did made me a career. So that's good. You know, I feel proud that, of, of that. Um, I feel proud that Ed, my friend said never say at my age. So I, I try not to say it. So I say, at my stage of the game, <laughs> I'm proud that I'm still playing really good. I mean, I think I'm playing better now than ever before. And that I'm still relevant in, in a certain way, yeah. you know. Because so I, I didn't think I'd be playing at this age. So, at this stage of the game, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you went for it. <laughs> I fell in the trap. You trapped me. But, uh, yeah, it, um, I'm proud of that. Yeah. That I could, I'm proud that my son was always proud of me. That's awesome. Since he was yeah. a little baby, he, I mean, he used to come to the stadiums and the arenas to hear me play, and he, think, he thought that all dads do that. Wow. You know, he thought yeah. that that's what I always do. Yeah, I mean, I remember taking him to a club one time, and he was like, so small. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know he didn't—he didn't realize I did a lot of different things, but but um, I think that was important. I think that's important as a parent to to try to make sure your kids are proud of you. You know, and and I'm gonna drift off way here, but Do you think- but one of the things I think that happened in 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 some parental experiences is that maybe because of the way they were brought up, what they've seen or something, they treat kids like kids, you know. They treat children like, ah, what do you know, you're a kid. I think it's really important to validate your child, even when they're little. Give them responsibilities to choose which food they want, you know, so give them a choice. Don't say, what do you want to eat? Yeah. Say, so you want to eat this or you want to? You want to wear this, you want to wear that. You know, from like, Babies yeah. in, on, a, on a high chair, you know? You give them the responsibility to choose, and they start to build this, this feeling of self-esteem that, oh, I can choose. Right. And then listening to all their opinions, as stupid and childish as it may be, give them a chance to vo- uh, voice it and, yeah. and, and, and comment on it, you know? Because this child will grow up, feeling so safe and so validated by the parent that when they get to that age of rebellion they won't look for validation outside of the house wow. that's what happens yeah. oh their friends say this their friends say that and they're the coolest out there and you, you that's how parents lose their children because they they ignored them all their life mm-hmm. treating them like children. Yeah. And then when they get to that certain age, adolescence, 14, 15, 13 years old, they're still treating them that way. And I just say, no, man, you can't treat me that way. I'm, I'm a grown-up now. Mm. Their minds, their whole persona has changed suddenly overnight. So that means you have to change. But it's too late by that time if you yeah. hadn't validated your kids. Yeah. So they look, for, they look for it out in the streets. So I'm really proud of that. And a lot of that That's has awesome. to do a lot of it had to do with my wife, who's a natural child psychologist. <laughs> she knew so much about it instinctively. She didn't study it or nothing, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, I see it with my son. We're like, we're like really close, and he's always been a good guy. He's got a good heart. He's a good husband, you know. So anyway, I'm That's proud good. of that. That's good. And uh, I don't know what that has to do with music, but you the- raised him, obviously. So, you know,
0: you're proud of that and he's proud of you for what yeah. you've been able to do. It
1: makes me feel really happy when yeah. when I I see that he's proud of me.
0: That's good. That's yeah. good. Harry, any last words of advice that you have for aspiring musicians? What's some words that you would like to share
1: with them? Uh, don't stress. Things will happen one way or the other, whether you stress or not. You know, everything happens for a reason. I know that's a corny thing, but uh, everything will happen. I think you should have faith in in God. You know, because ultimately, I I really believe that you don't have a lot of control of what happens in your life. It's grace of God. Mm, it just you that's know, good. Every day is different. Whether you go out and walk in the middle of the street and get hit by a car or not, that's grace of God that you didn't. You know, every day is you, you have to be grateful for every day and everything you do. And uh, most important, don't worry. I I I remember going through periods of times, uh, like when I was a teenager, and it wasn't even worry. It was wondering if I would ever be a musician, a professional musician. Mm-hmm. And it was a fleeting thought. Uh, I didn't worry because somehow I felt very positive that things are going to work out. And so I tell people, no matter how much is stress. Um, it ain't gonna make a difference Yeah. so just make moves towards a vision I think it's important to have a vision you know uh, a detailed vision and not about the house you want to live in and the car you want to own but a vision about a condition of life wow Like I want to feel grateful for everything I want to feel uh um, that every all my efforts have paid off, not monetarily or materially, but in my own heart. I mm-hmm. say, I really feel good about what I just did. You know, I think when you are good at something, one of the the uh, natural perks is money. I really think so. I never worried about money and I still don't worry about money and it seems to draw in more money the <laughs> less I the less I worry about yeah, it. Yeah. it. It it's just that way. Uh, and money isn't isn't everything as they say. Right. You know, you want to want to be able to to care for your family. That's relative also. What? What are you talking about? Drive your kid to the soccer game in a Mercedes? You should be just happy to be able to drive your kid to the soccer game. Period. He don't care what kind of car he's in, yeah. you know. So be a good parent. Stop thinking about the Mercedes. You know, I grew up in a tenement house, rat-filled, and cockroach-filled. I don't worry about a mansion. I still grew up. It didn't affect, you know. <laughs> give your kid the best you can, but it's not the end of the world if yeah. you can't live in Bel Air, right? You know, the, the attention. I think a lot of this can be easily seen. The attention you give your children is what makes happy children, not the yeah. material things you give them. Right. You, grew, you start giving them all this stuff. They grew up to be spoiled and then grew up to be vicious corporate people, you know, yeah, vicious. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to perpetuate that kind of crap in the world. Yeah. yeah. You know, so that's another accomplishment yeah. you could say, or I could say that <laughs> I brought a really great human being into, into the, the world, world. Yeah. you know, uh, so yeah, don't don't stress. That's good. Don't stress. Awesome. It, it things will happen. Yeah. Harry, thank you so much for your time.
0: All right, now get out of here. <laughs> Episode number nineteen with Harry Kim. Thank you so much,
1: man. That was great. Thank you, thank you yes, very of much. Course, of course, it was course. fun. Yes. And uh, you know, it's it's for an introvert like me, it's usually very difficult to talk. Man. But you are just so great at it. You just dragged all this information out. <laughs> and you thank you very much also thank you
0: Harry that was uh, awesome
1: yeah, episode next, 19 with Harry Kim uh, next time bring pizza yes okay bye
0: <laughs> welcome back thank you for checking out episode number 19 with Harry Kim hopefully you enjoyed it episode number 20 comes out next week so make sure to tune in have a great week